There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Welcome to this extremely important episode of Revealing the True Light. It's actually episode number 52, so we've been going an entire year. In episode 43, I talked a lot about what other religions believe concerning the coming of a Messiah. In this episode, I'm going to talk only about the biblical view. Of course, there are many versions of the biblical view concerning the return of Jesus, at least five main contenders. And let me enumerate them right now. Number one, a pre-tribulation rapture. Number two, a mid-tribulation rapture. Number three, a pre-wrath rapture, midway through the second three and a half years of a seven-year tribulation period. Number four, the post-tribulation rapture, occurring on the last day of this age. And number five, no rapture at all in the traditional sense. On the contrary, it involves a full manifestation of the image of the Son of God in his people. It is Jesus, quote, unquote, returning by fully manifesting in his offspring, who will then usher in his kingdom into this world. I came into the kingdom of God during the Jesus movement era that phenomenal period back in the latter 60s and early 70s when the Holy Spirit swept through the world in a powerful and a unique way, changing the lives of millions of people out of the hippie generation, the flower child generation that was designed by Satan through drugs and immorality to destroy an entire generation. And yet out of that chaos emerged a great spiritual awakening. I believe God can do that once again and how desperately we need it. Like many of that era, though, one of the first books I read after becoming a follower of Jesus was one by Hal Lindsey titled The Late Great Planet Earth. In it, like many other prophecy teachers in that day, Howe proposed a pre-tribulation rapture theory. I pondered that doctrine for a brief period in the beginning of my walk with God without questioning its validity or its scriptural and historical basis. But then, as I began deeply studying the Word of God, much to my surprise, I discovered a totally different perspective. I also received a profound night vision from the Lord that confirmed what I read in Scripture, but I'll share that toward the end of this program. For almost five decades now, I have believed that the church will not be mysteriously raptured right before a seven-year tribulation period begins but instead that we will pass through the tribulation until the very last day, 
the last 24-hour period of time in this age, the catching away, which is traditionally called the rapture, will take place. As an evangelist, I have never felt impressed to emphasize this in my ministry because I work with various pastors that have various points of view, and I felt like there were far more important issues that needed my attention and my focus, like true salvation, real discipleship, faith for the miraculous, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and the revelation of our spiritual identity in Christ. However, we now stand on the precipice. Don't you sense it when you see the chaos going on globally? The human race is about to slide downhill into utter chaos. So more than ever, God's people need to know the truth. Will the church escape seven years before the end of the age and face none of the extreme pressure of the last days while the rest of the world careens wildly into a headlong collision with last days' prophecies? Or will that seven-year period be a time of the manifestation of great glory and the time of the final harvest? Remember, it was toward the end of the book of Revelation that an angel flew across the heavens and cried out to the Son of God and said, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Yes, all of the anguish of the last days is going to serve to direct men's gaze toward things that are eternal instead of things that are temporal. And we will see a great inflow into the kingdom of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You're going to be able to answer the important questions I've posed with confidence after this episode is over. Now, right now, you may be questioning whether I even have a valid point of view. You may embrace a pre-tribulation viewpoint. However, I urge you in a Berean attitude of humility and the fear of God that you will search the scriptures with me and open your heart to the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry, because the Bible said he will lead us and guide us into all truth and that he will teach us all things. So I am depending on the Holy Spirit to teach you I'm not just trying to put out an idea that will pass from my mind to your mind. I pray the Holy Spirit will embrace the words I speak, saturate the words I speak, and communicate to you a God-inspired message. It is very important, however, that before I go any further, I lay a primary foundation stone which will reveal the attitude of my heart. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul summed up his ministry by saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. Notice that he said the crown of righteousness will be given to all who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
those who embrace a pre-tribulation rapture concept are often very sincere lovers of God who passionately love the idea of the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, and the translation of living believers. Those who embrace a mid-tribulation rapture view normally love his appearing as well. And those who promote a post-tribulation view also love his appearing. So our viewpoint on this important issue in Scripture is not as important as our heart toward the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonder and the beauty and the power and the majesty and the glory of the coming of our Savior who will restore this world to the pristine paradise it once was in the very beginning. So that's the most important thing. And you may disagree with my points of view, but I agree with the love you have for God, the love you have for the Bible, and the love you have for the truth. So I don't argue with that, but we can discuss these things and still maintain respect and love for one another. The pre-tribulation rapture theory is not about Jesus appearing but the church disappearing. It's a secret coming, but that's not what the Bible forecasts. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says that every eye will see him, not just those who are ready to meet him at his return, but every single person in the world who is alive when Jesus comes again, will behold him. Now, how can that be if he's going to descend in Jerusalem and his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives? We can't see things happening on that side of the globe if we're here in the United States of America. Well, if the shuttle can make a circuit around the whole earth as it comes in for a landing so that it can be seen over every continent. I guarantee you the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords can make a circuit around the entire world and his glory can spill over to such degree that the light of the sun will be like the light of seven days, one of the prophets said. So no one will miss it. It will not be a secret coming. It will be a manifestation of heaven on earth that everyone will be whole. However, if the popular pre-tribulation view is right, then only the church will be aware of his coming, his initial coming, when he carries the church away into a heavenly state when supposedly the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. And then the church will return with him at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. I don't believe that's the divine order, not as revealed in Scripture. And I believe you'll agree with me as we proceed. You need to remember this. Jesus did not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. The apostle and epistle writer Paul did not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. The apostle and gospel writer John did not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. The early church fathers did not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. Well, when did it become a popular belief? Well, there's no way to really nail down the exact beginning point, but it's commonly agreed that John Nelson Darby, 
apparently was the primary voice that popularized the pre-tribulation rapture theory in 1827. So it hasn't really been around that long, a little less than 200 years. Then it became even more widespread by inclusion in the Schofield Bible, the reference Bible that became the Bible of choice among preachers, ministers, and pastors. So if you reach the leaders, you can reach the followers. And if leaders began to embrace this idea because it was in the Schofield Bible, then those who were influenced by them readily received what they had to say. And thus, it became the dominant view in Christendom. Now, I cannot cover all the necessary interrelated topics on this episode, but with seven major points, we will at least get the ball rolling. It is so easy to believe things just because they're traditional. And before I go into the seven points, I need to emphasize this. Let me say it again. It is so easy to believe things just because they are traditional beliefs. For instance, many people believe three kings came from the Orient to visit Jesus at the manger scene in Bethlehem. The Bible never said there were three of them, and the Bible never said they were kings. They were wise men from the East. It could have been a company of 50 wise men, for all we know. And then you often hear people say, 666, that's the mark of the beast. No, it's not the mark of the beast. Read carefully out of Revelation chapter 13. There's three things that people will receive in the last days. The mark of the beast, the name of the beast, and the number of his name. We do not know for sure what the mark of the beast is. We do not know for certain what the name of the beast is, but we do know the number of his name is 666. It's not the mark of the beast. It's the number of his name. But people throw that phrase out all the time till it becomes a commonly held belief. So we've got to inspect scripture for ourselves if we're going to find the truth and embrace the truth and promote the truth. So let's get quickly into seven primary points that prove a post-tribulation view of the coming of the Lord and the catching away of the saints. And I do prefer the term catching away because that's the biblical wording. Rapture is not a biblical word, though it does describe a biblical concept. I prefer to use the wording in Scripture. First, let's cover the issue of the quote-unquote church. I have often heard it emphasized that the word church does not appear in the book of the Revelation after the third chapter. So the common assumption is that the church is no longer in the world at that point. However, the word church is never used in the book of Revelation as a corporate term for the entire body of Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are merely messages sent to seven individual local churches scattered throughout Asia. In chapter 4, when John saw a door open in heaven and heard the words, Come up here, many proposed that to be symbolic of the church being raptured before the seals are broken, before the trumpets are blown, and before the bowls or vials are poured out. 
However, the Bible makes no such claim. Besides, you cannot base any doctrine on a parable or a symbol or some metaphorical comparison in the Bible. A major doctrine has to be established by being clearly defined or clearly declared in Scripture, and then parables and symbols and metaphorical comparisons enhance that foundational belief, but they do not establish it. Other terms for God's people beside the word church do appear in the book of Revelation. Like the word saints, we know that the saints will be here because Revelation 13 verse 7 says the beast, another term for the Antichrist, will make war against the saints. That means an all-out global persecution of the church of the living God. And I know some propose those are Jewish people who convert to Christianity or who become followers of Jesus during the tribulation era. But again, the Bible does not say that. The saints will be here. The saints will be persecuted. But the saints, one way or the other, will emerge victorious from it all. Number two, the issue of the quote-unquote elect. In Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, when Jesus taught about the signs of the last days, he refers to the elect six times as being present in the world. The word elect simply means God's chosen ones and is a word used for born-again New Covenant believers throughout the New Testament. There is no scriptural reason to assign to it any other meaning in Jesus' Mount Olivet Discourse on the last days. He said that false prophets and false teachers would arise and show great signs and wonders and would deceive many, and if it were possible, they would deceive even the very elect. Which means that the power of the Holy Spirit will be so strong in the lives of God's people that we will not be deceived by the lies that will be swallowed by the masses in these last days. And then at the very end of the age, read Matthew 24 for yourself. At the very end of the age, the Bible said, after the sun is darkened and the moon refuses to shine and the stars fall from heaven, that there will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. With power and great glory, he will descend. And that's when the catching away will take place. At the very end. Number three, the issue of wrath. This word, wrath, is a very important one. In advocating a pre-tribulation view, students of prophecy often quote 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that talking about the wrath of God that will be poured out in the last days? Certainly, that could be a part of that statement, but let me break it down for you. See, many assume that we will not be in this world, we cannot be in this world, when the vials of wrath, also in other translations called bowls of wrath, are poured out. And you can check that out in Revelation chapter 15. However, there is a difference 
between the wrath of God that is poured out solely on the wicked and a time of great tribulation that will affect everyone in the world, both the wicked and the righteous. You should read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 for further support of that statement. We who are saved are no longer vessels of wrath. We are vessels of mercy. Yet we still go through tribulations in life. Some of you have faced horrible problems and battles mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. That doesn't mean you're not one of God's people. Tribulations will come. Jesus said that in his discourse to the disciples right before he left the world. He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. So that's inevitable. The early church went through tribulations. Did that mean they were not as spiritual as we are or not as favored as we are at this time? What makes us any better? If they were martyred, why should we escape that kind of treatment? And how can you preach a pre-tribulation rapture theory to the saints of God in places like India and China and Indonesia and around the globe where great persecution against the church is raging. You can't tell them that it's coming. It's already here. And we in the West think somehow we're worthy of escaping. I don't believe that's an informed point of view. The early church went through it. We'll go through it. Besides, even though the church, and this is very important, even though the church will never be the object of God's wrath in the last days, it will be the object of Satan's wrath. Do you remember in Revelation 12 where the devil is cast down to the earth having great wrath because he knows his time is short and he makes war against the woman? Read Revelation 12, the sun-clothed woman who is crowned with 12 stars and the moon under her feet. I believe she represents the Israel of God, a group of covenant people from the Old Testament and the New Testament who are all married to God in a covenant relationship. I believe it embraces both covenants. And he makes war against the woman and the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yes, the devil will come down from heaven, having great wrath. May I repeat it? The church will not experience the wrath of God in the last days, but the church will experience the wrath of Satan. However, if God be for us, who can be against us? No matter what comes our way, we know the end of the book, and we know that we win. Number four, the Antichrist must be revealed first before the catching away of the saints takes place. Paul emphasized this when he talked about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he made it very clear that this can only take place after the man of sin, the lawless one, the Antichrist, is revealed, exalting himself above all all religious worship in the world. In fact, the Antichrist, I believe, will not only exalt himself above Christianity, but every other form of religion. 
Now, let me read that passage. It's a very important passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll read it without commenting too much. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. See, Jesus said deception would be one of the strongest things to be wary of in the last days, and so did Paul. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day. What day? The day of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. What is called the rapture or the catching away. That day will not come, verse 3 says, unless the falling away comes first and that man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, I hear many people interpret that verse to mean the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the world. But it never said the Holy Spirit that restrains the full manifestation of the Antichrist spirit would be taken out of the world, but rather would be taken out of the way. And if people are going to be converted during the tribulation period, that cannot happen anyway if the Holy Spirit is not here. Because you cannot be saved except the Spirit draw you, except the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Then it said, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, I don't have a full scriptural basis for this next statement, but I believe the lie spoken of in verse 11 is the doctrine or the concept that we are all divine. We are all God. That's a new age idea that the entire universe is a manifestation of the Godhead. So everything has a divine essence. So if the tree is God, the cat is God, the dog is God, it's no quantum leap of logic to say we are God. The absolute antithesis of the truth. It is the lie that Satan told in the beginning and the lie that he will promote to the very end. Number five, and this is a very important point. And I know this has been a very long podcast, but I've got to get this in. The key word last, L-A-S-T, last. Focus on that word. Concerning the end of this age, Jesus repeatedly prophesied that he will raise up his people on the last day. 
Let me read a couple of verses. John chapter 6, verse 39 and verse 40. Jesus said, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Then the next verse, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then over in verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. If Jesus had promoted a pre-tribulation rapture theory, he would have said, I will raise him up seven years before the last day. See, there's no day past the last day. This is a reference to the last 24-hour period of time in this age, often referred to as the day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says that. Read that whole chapter carefully, though, and you will discover that day will take the world by surprise, but not the church. The key word last is also found in Paul's prophetic teaching. He taught that the resurrection of the dead and the catching away of living believers and the glorification of our bodies will happen at the last trumpet, not before the seven trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation take place. It is only when the seventh and final trumpet sounds that the declaration is made in Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. Next, number six, the word first. One of the strongest points that I have is concerning Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Listen very carefully. As John brings his revelation to a close, he says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Here's the powerful statement. This is the first resurrection. That's in your Bible. The first resurrection. There is no resurrection before the first resurrection. And if according to verse 4, the first resurrection contains those who are martyred during the terror reign of the Antichrist, the beast, those who refuse to take his mark, then it cannot, I repeat, it cannot happen seven years prior to the end of the age. It has to be a post-tribulation view. But I want you to see other scriptures containing the resurrection, because the scripture clearly says that, that we who are alive will not be caught up before those who are dead in Christ. The dead in Christ shall rise first. 
And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so the resurrection of the dead happens initially and then immediately following is the translation of living believers. You need to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 17 and get some more details on that. In fact, why don't I just read it right now? But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I do not believe that Christians will experience the final expression of the indignation or the wrath of God. In Isaiah's writings, he said, Come, my people, and hide thyself, as it were, but for a moment until the indignation be overpassed. He said, The earth will cast out the dead. Think of that for just a moment. Hide thyself, as it were, but for a moment. A lot can happen within a 24-hour period of time. I believe that when Jesus descends and the world sees him, and we're caught up to meet him in the air, that's when that final sweeping, wrath-filled judgment will consume the planet. But the church will not be touched by it. And then we will return with him. See, it's like a welcoming committee. Just like the citizens of a city would run out of a city to welcome a returning general from a battlefield victory in Roman days. Uh, as the triumph was celebrated, so will it be with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We will be caught up to meet him and then victoriously, triumphantly welcome him into this world because our ultimate goal is not to be in heaven forever. He said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So we will return and we will escape that final stroke of wrath-filled indignation. Isaiah made that clear. And that will all happen on the last day. So how are we to respond to all of this? I believe the main suggestion that I could convey to you is to focus on the harvest. Finally, as already mentioned, Jesus never taught a pre-tribulation rapture, but he did teach a great harvest taking place at the end of this age, and apparently a supernatural preservation of God's people in the world. In Matthew 24, verses 36 through 41, he said, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but we do know the season, see. Then Jesus went on to say, As the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For 
as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. I'm emphasizing those words for a reason. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. I've heard many prophecy teachers refer to this scripture and declare that the one who is taken of the two men in the field, the one who is taken of the two women grinding at the mill, is a reference to those who are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But the analogy is fractured and ruptured, if that's your interpretation, because the flood came and took them all away. It was the ungodly who, under judgment, were swept away by the flood being referenced when Jesus talked about Noah and his day. So you want to be among those who are left. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken. Taken by what? By the judgments that will sweep through the world like a flood in the last days. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left. Taken by what? Taken by the great tribulations that will sweep through the world in the last days. Many will not survive. Many, probably well over half of the world population, will perish. But God's people will be sheltered in a very supernatural way. I believe many of them will die. Many of them will be persecuted. Many of them will not be able to handle what happens in the last day. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's a win-win situation. However, I'm going to end this podcast with a dream that God gave me shortly after I was saved. It's an amazing thing that God usually shows you the end from the beginning. And one of the very first revelations I received, I was in a city, a big metropolis like New York or Chicago. In this night vision, I saw up and down the streets of this city, hundreds of people writhing in anguish, rolling and screaming as as they lay on the sidewalks of this city because of these sores, these horrible sores that were appearing all over their bodies. And they had no remedy for it. And then all of a sudden, I saw myself and the man who won me to the Lord come around a corner in that city. And there wasn't one sore on us, but we were clothed with the Shekinah glory of God, and that glory radiated from us so powerfully it could be seen from a great distance. I believe that the glory of the Lord will be upon the church in the last days. Read Isaiah 61. Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon thee. Darkness will cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but his glory will be seen upon you. Yes, this will be a time of great glory for the church. There's much more that can be said. I urge you to search out these scriptures for yourself. Not so that fear will rise in your heart, but so that faith will rise in your heart. 
if you know what to expect, you can strengthen your will ahead of time and resolve within your heart, I will stand in faith, in dedication to God, in consecration to my purpose, no matter what comes on this planet. See, knowing the future, understanding prophecies correctly will prepare you for what is coming. I hope this has been a help to you. I hope this has been a revelation that will change the course of your life. Contact me. Let me know how you feel. I've never asked for support, but we need help to continue this podcast. We need sponsors who will stand behind us if we're going to continue in the next year sharing truth with you from week to week. And if you've been blessed by revealing the true light, then as quickly as you can, send an offering by going to our website, shreveministries.org or thetruelight.net. Either one of those websites, shreveministries.org or thetruelight.net and share an offering and please share it on a weekly or a monthly basis. And that way we'll be able to continue sharing the word of God. God bless you. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.